One of the most revealing aspects of the past three months has been that overt hypocrisy of the people who are loudest about racism suddenly being the most silent about anti-Semitism. And it just, it, it speaks of course anti-Semitism, but also the real narcissism of this whole thing, where people are hypersensitive, but then they're unable to have the imagination or the conscience to just look outside the shores of their own country and to look at how other people are living and dying and to take a stand on that. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Jake Wallace-Simons. Jake, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me back. Yeah, I should say welcome back to the show. The last time we had you on this podcast was four months ago, and we were talking about your newly published book, Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. And I was looking earlier today, and we published that podcast on Spike on the 7th of September. And then, of course, a month later, it's the 7th of October, uh, we see Hamas's pogrom in Israel, and then just an extraordinary fallout from that event, both in the Middle East itself, but across the Western world in terms of protest, um, all sorts of crazy commentary, particularly about Israel, even acts of violence, acts of racism, just an extraordinary worldwide fallout from um, the events of 7th of October. And it feels to me very much, certainly when we look at the commentary and the activism in the West, it feels very clear to me that the thesis of your book, Israelophobia, has been very well vindicated in terms of the hatred for Israel representing a new species of the oldest hatred of, of anti-Semitism. So I guess I, I want to start with a broad question, which is, I imagine you've been shocked by the events of the past few months, uh, including in the West, but not necessarily surprised? Yes. I mean, I've, I've just finished writing a new foreword to the next edition of Israelophobia that, that talks about October the 7th. And the title of the first bit is I Told You So. Um, and never have those words given me less pleasure to utter. Uh, I mean, like you say, it's it, my, my book saw all of this coming in a way in terms of the intellectual framework of what's been happening culturally across the world. It's almost like um, a sort of map of tributaries that have suddenly been flooded with a huge volume of water more than anybody ever expected. The framework we knew about, but the volume was, was unexpected. And the one thing that I've really noticed that's different from the past, I mean, you know, the massacres that took place on October the 7th recall so many episodes stretching back through Jewish history um, from, you know, of course, the Nazi pogroms, but further back, uh, from, from that as well, the the massacres in in the Far Hood in Baghdad in 1941, the Spanish Inquisition, you know, the York Massacre, and even further back than that. But the, the the difference, it seems to me, is that in all of those cases, everyday anti-Semitic bullying mounted until it erupted into an orgy of violence. Whereas in this case. It's been the opposite. An orgy of violence has precipitated a worldwide trend for everyday anti-Semitic bullying. And the sorts of things that we previously would have reported on with great horror have now become commonplace. I mean, if at the Jewish Chronicle, which is the paper that I edit, if we get a story about you know, kids being bullied in the streets, their hats being knocked off, maybe being pushed aside or not allowed into a shop or you know, that, that feels like maybe on page six, if there's room, 
whereas it used to be that that was much more prominent. So I knew what was going on. I wasn't the only one. Every, you know, people knew what was going on, and my book mapped it out. But then the, the reward of that prophecy was just unbearably uh, overwhelming, and, and still is. So that's a, a very useful starting point. And I want to, I guess, I want to start off by talking to you specifically about the 7th of October, and then we can look at the consequences that it has had. So if we look at the event itself, I mean, it's it's so strange in some ways, because a lot of people will say, well, 7th of October didn't come out of the blue, there's a context to this. And they try to contextualize this orgy of violence, as you describe it, within normal politics, within normal conflict, within normal uh, uh, uh clashes between, well, Israel and Palestinian forces in this case, but the, the, the normal flow of geopolitics. They try and contextualize this event in that, which is which to my mind is incredibly unconvincing. I think the context is much more the one that you've just given, which is that there have been these kinds of acts of violence against Jews for many centuries, and this looked like another one of those, um, although it may have been justified in different language and a different flag was waved as it was carried out, but it seemed to echo those events quite well. Um, why do you think it happened so quickly that the 7th of October was either being downplayed by elements in the West or even justified? What do you think? Were you shocked by the speed with which that happened? And there was there seemed to be so little pause where people thought to themselves, hold on, this is a historical crime that we've just witnessed and it should be taken seriously. Yeah, I mean... The real moment of clarity. I mean, you know, October the 7th, it felt like, and we'll talk about this later, I think, it felt like a flare being shot up above a darkened battlefield and you suddenly, it's illuminated and you can see where everybody is standing. They've been standing there for some time and there are far fewer of them beside you than you thought, but now you're seeing where they really are. And the most vivid moment was just when the massacres were happening. In fact, before they'd even finished the anti-Israel crowd, if you can call them that, came out onto the streets and protested. And what were they, I mean, all Israel had done, all Israeli Jews and Arabs, all Israelis had done was be slaughtered. And that was, that was enough to bring people out onto the streets. So they weren't protesting against anything. They were protesting for something quite clearly. The mask really came off at that point. They were protesting for the annihilation of Jews. And that word context that you rightly pinpointed is it says so much because you know it wasn't just you know idiots on social media that were talking about the context it was the secretary general of the united nations said this doesn't happen in a void this doesn't you know babies aren't beheaded for no reason you know as if as if the jews had brought it on themselves as if they're responsible for their own destruction and their own massacre this is you know gaza hasn't been occupied since 2005 and yet the occupation is to blame and that really was, was a good example of where I looked back at my book and thought, fuck me. You know, the idea that Jews brought it on themselves, there's this phrase that I use in, this, in the book, demonization demands destruction. And you can see it throughout history. You know, let's look, look at the Nazi period, for example. Jews are, were built up over a period of time as being responsible for the world's ills for society's ills, for the ills of global politics, for the aggression of America and Britain and, and Russia, that they were held responsible. You know, the, the, the German phrase was the Jews are our misfortune. And once you instill that as a cultural assumption over a long enough period, then the conclusion is natural. Well, okay, it's a hard job, but we've got to get rid of them. 
they've got to be destroyed. They've got to be eliminated for the good of mankind, for the future of our children. That's what the Nazis taught and some of them and, and tried to persuade themselves was the truth. And the same thing in medieval times. You know, the Jews, if the Jews were the killers of Christ, they were the chosen people and they betrayed Jesus and killed him. You know, what, what else are they capable of? No wonder they're this evil, you know, uh, evil presence in our midst. And the conclusion again is, well, what can we do but destroy them, but marginalize them, but expel them? We can't cope with these people in our societies because they stand against everything we hold dear. And now look, this, this idea of the context for this massacre and rape of Jews, it's like, well, the Jews have been unable to restrain their temptation to occupy other people's land, to oppress the underdog, to, to, to indulge their appetite for white supremacy and racism and apartheid. They haven't been able to hold themselves back from that. That's the context. So what's the solution? It's pretty hard. It's pretty tough. But they've got to be exterminated. They've got to be eliminated or erased from that part of the Middle East. It's the same mechanism, demonization demanding destruction. And that demonization, the real travesty is that so many people have stood by and seen the drip drip of that demonization towards Israel happening decade after decade in the same way as it happened towards the Jews in Nazi Germany and the Jews in medieval Europe. And people didn't even recognize it, let alone stand against it. And the results we saw on October the 7th. Yeah, I think um, one of the most convincing arguments uh, in your book, well, I guess it's the core of your book in in many ways, is that uh, what was once said about the Jews is now said about the Jewish state. So the kind of hatreds that have been visited on uh, the Jews historically, whether it was the religious form of uh, racism or, or biological racism or conspiratorial racism, all the different manifestations of anti-Semitism over the centuries, you argue that that now uh, manifests itself in this visceral hatred for Israel that we've seen growing in sections of the West uh, and other parts of the world, of course, over the past few decades. That, to me, has become crystal clear since the 7th of October. And I think one would need to be blind or, or willfully ignorant now not to recognize that. I mean, the things that are being said about Israel now are so reminiscent of what was once said about the Jewish people. You know, they have a bloodlust, they love killing people. Um, as you say, they have this all-powerful impact on America, on Britain. They're the puppeteers of politics. They're uh, the poison in the well of global affairs. They are the destructive power on earth, the, fundamentally the most destructive power. And the things that are said about Israeli people, um, they are dehumanized to an extraordinary extent in lots of the commentary. I'm not, I'm not going to name this person, but there's one left-wing journalist who described Israel as a society possessed with murderous mania. I can't think of any other country where you would get away with saying something like that without at least being accused of some form of bigotry. So that side of your book now seems very clear. Is that something that you've really clocked as well since the 7th of October, uh, the, the, the role that Israel now plays in um, rehabilitating anti-Semitic sentiment? And would you go so far as to say that Israelophobia is now the key form of anti-Semitism, the, 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 the most important form, the one that we need to be most concerned about? Absolutely. I mean, the, I think the starting point for understanding this is to take a step back and to recognise the fact that Israel is responding in the same way as any other country in the world would respond. Any other democracy, certainly, the autocracies would respond in a far more brutal way. Any other democracy would respond 
like Israel is responding. And in fact, most of us would respond if we go on previous form in a rather more brutal way. I mean, the, the American national security spokesman said just the other day that he talked about the Israeli practice of notifying civilians before attacks so they can move out the way. And he said, no other country does this. I don't even think we would do this, mention it, you know, meaning America. No other country does that. The Americans don't do that. You know, the way in which um, the American-led coalition crushed ISIS, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, was, was, it was brutal. It was brutal. I mean, you know, the, the Battle of Mosul alone in 2016, 2017 was quite similar to the Gaza operation in some ways. It, it involved initially a siege and there were terrorists hiding among civilians in this city. It was bombed from the air by the, by the coalition. Then the Iraqi and Kurdish forces went in, killed uh, Islamic State, and by the end, uh, about 11,000 at least civilians, some estimates put them up to 40,000 civilians, lay dead. I didn't see a single person on the streets of our country saying, what about the civilians? People cheered that Islamic State was destroyed. Didn't give a second thought for civilians. There was no 24-7 news coverage of the, of the deaths of civilians in Mosul. And I can guarantee you they didn't die any less gruesome a death than those poor souls losing their lives in, in Gaza. So Israel's behaving the same as any other country. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, they, you know, if these people calling for a ceasefire. Well, maybe you should have thought about that before you massacred the Jews and took, you know, 300 of, the, of them hostage. What do you think would happen? Uh, and then suddenly, okay, relax, guys, let's have a ceasefire. So, you know, so it's the same as any other country. And yet the, the rhetoric surrounding it has been so different. And as you say, you can see the old tropes coming back, uh, the, particularly the blood libel, the, the Jewish lust for blood, for the blood of non-Jews, and particularly for children, for babies. That, the Israeli baby killer has become the dominant image, I think, um, in the discourse and that has been the dominant image since it was invented in Norwich in 1144, I think it was. Uh, and it's been, it's been commonplace since then coming and going. But not only that, I think that we've also added in our time the further sins of our age, the modern sins. The worst sins of our times are white supremacy, apartheid, racism, colonialism, genocide. All of those are pinned on Israel have been for some time, as I put in my book, and now we're seeing it with, with, you know, with, with rocket boosters on. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, and I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Absolutely. And in fact, that, that takes me on to the, another question I wanted to ask you specifically about um, the International Court of Justice and South Africa bringing the case uh, for genocide against Israel, which is going to um, kick off in this week that we're talking. And I find it incredibly chilling 
Um, the very idea that this war is a genocide, I think, is a grotesque lie. Uh, it's a war. It's not a genocide. By the way, it's a war that Hamas started, not a war that Israel started or wanted. Um, so it's a war, not a genocide. But then, as you've just said, it's it seems to me not just from the ICJ case and South Africa's actions, but also from a lot of the commentary we've seen over the past few months, it seems very clear to me that there is this projection of the sins of the West onto Israel. And you've mentioned some of them there, white supremacy, colonialism, uh, racism, whatever else it might be, but particularly the sins of genocide. And it's it's not only that Israel is being accused of a form of genocide, it's that in a lot of the discussion and a lot of the activism, you will see Israel being likened specifically to the architects of the Holocaust. So not just any run-of-the-mill genocide, but the, the the worst genocide in human history, and of course the victims of which were the Jews, is now being projected onto Israel. There seems to be this, almost this kind of vindictive um, attempt at absolution by elements in the West. You know, let's let's absolve ourselves of the terrible crimes we've committed by now projecting them onto the victims of those crimes and, and the survivors of them. There's something quite sinister going on there, isn't there? There's a real, it's it's hard to put one's finger on it, but there's a historical turning point taking place, not only in relation to how we view Israel, but in relation to what the West is saying about itself and its own history. Yes, and I think that <clears throat> underpinning it is this demonization, demanding destruction. You know, it's almost like the subtext to it is if the Jews are going to be as bad as the Nazis, if they always had that propensity to be as bad as the Nazis, then maybe what Hamas did wasn't quite as bad as it seems, you know. This word, um, the Nazi word, ruth, ruthless toughness that Hannah Arendt talks about, this sort of necessary cruelty to get the job done that needed doing. Maybe that's what Hamas were doing as well, you know. And there's a particular kind of glee in the mind of the anti-Semite when you can turn the allegation on the, on the Jews that they've become like the Nazis. There's a sort of relish, isn't there? And they know it's not true. They know it's not true. But it's like, it reminds me of that saying about um, when an anti-Semite accuses a Jew of stealing, wrongly accuses a Jew of stealing, it's not because they think they stole, it's because they want to enjoy seeing them turn their pockets out. You know, it's, I, I want to enjoy seeing you protest that you're not the Nazis. That's where the pleasure, the real pleasure comes from for the anti-Semite. And I think that, um, you know, what we've seen, I mean, anti-Semitism is always full of these moral inversions where things are literally turned upside down or metaphorically at least turned upside down. I mean, look at what Hamas has managed to do, you know, through keying in to the Israelophobia that's manifest in so much of society. They've been able to conduct an attempted genocide and convince the world that Israel is the genocidal force. You know, they've been able to conduct an attempt at ethnic cleansing and convince the world that Israel is the one that's doing the ethnic cleansing. It's quite extraordinary. This inversion, it, you always find that in anti-Semitism. And I can't help but think when you talk about genocide and the South African efforts to condemn Israel in the International Criminal Court, that you know maybe there was a parallel universe in which on the 7th of October, on the 8th of October, the day after the 7th of October, the UN Security Council got together and condemned Hamas for attempted genocide. And celebrities around the world took part in a social media campaign where they held up signs saying, bring them home, or Israeli flags. And world opinion turned against this 
ISIS-style force in Gaza. And then the UN perhaps dispatched some international troops to help keep the peace and support Israel to root out the terrorists. Maybe Egypt allow, opened its borders to allow civilians through checking them for Hamas fighters to, to help them get out of harm's way. And maybe some international muscle was brought to bear upon destroying Hamas in the same way as we destroyed ISIS. And then maybe people would have rejoiced when Hamas was destroyed and then turned their attention to being serious about Hezbollah and Iran to get them to stop with their genocidal intentions. Maybe there's a parallel universe in which that happened. But, you know, considering that and realizing just how natural and normal and right it would have been exposes the depravity of what we've seen in the last three months. Yeah, that's that's a striking alternative history you've outlined there. And and listening to you say, one thinks, isn't it remarkable that, that something like that didn't happen? Exactly. And particularly, actually, with respect to the female violence, you know, the sexual violence. I mean, that I mean, women are fascinatingly uh, and appallingly at the very heart of this story all the way through. I mean, you know, you've got Hamas on the one side, who are these Islamist fanatics who repress women uh, in every conceivable way, in the same way as Islamist fanatics do across the world. They're fighting against a democracy that is the most liberated place for women in the world, among them. They fought against women. There was that wonderful, extraordinary story about those female-only tanks. I don't know if you saw that. There were tanks that were crewed entirely by women, young women, aged around 20 years old. On October the 7th, they heard that something was happening, jumped into their tanks, and just went to the border to see what they could do. Ends up fighting for 17 hours um, against marauding Hamas terrorists, saved an entire kibbutz uh, by holding off terrorists, killed hundreds of them, um, and were the great protectors of, of, of that part of Israel. This was the first time in history that an all-female tank crew had fought in combat. And they did brilliantly well and were absolute heroes. And they were interviewed by, by Israeli television. And at the end, the most striking bit for me was they asked them, how do you feel about making history? And one of them said, it doesn't make a difference. I mean, did the terrorists know they were being killed by men or women? They didn't know. What's the difference? We're just all doing, playing our role and doing our bit. And it was such an Israeli response. But you've got this Israeli society where women are liberated and equal and celebrated and powerful and strong. And you've got... Hamas representing a society which is the diametric opposite of that. You've got the West looking on that's supposed to celebrate female liberation. And you've got the way in which Hamas carried out their attacks, you know, shot through with the most bestial sexual violence. And you've got people in the West who normally jump up and down about the slightest stroke of a hand on a leg with hashtags of Me Too and silence as violence, saying absolutely nothing. I mean, that exposes the hypocrisy of what we've been looking at and the topsy-turvy world that I've been talking about. Absolutely. And uh, I really agree that the only way to describe it is moral inversion. You know, the, the, the victims of a genocidal attack are accused of genocide. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the people who are subjected to the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust are compared to the authors of the Holocaust. Um, the society that suffered a rapacious assault on its women uh, on 7th of October is now accused of being rapacious and evil and wicked and so on and, and, and loves killing women, loves killing children. Um, a complete inversion of reality, truth and morality itself. It really is alarming to behold. Um, you mentioned there the women uh, uh, who were victims of the pogrom on 7th of October and the extraordinary cowardly 
uh, shameful silence of so many in the West. I wanted to ask you about that specifically, um, because one thing that we have seen since the 7th of October is atrocity denialism. Um, and a lot of people have said this, and it's true, that y- you do find yourself scratching your head at the fact that the Holocaust could be so swiftly denied in the decades after it happened. And you think, how on earth did that, how, how did such irrationalism happen? How did uh, reality come to be denied by so many people? And now you understand why, because we're seeing it in real time on the internet, in activist circles, in commentary circles. Um how do you explain that? The, the the generous part of me thinks that there is some instinctive recognition amongst some of these Western activists that what Hamas did was unspeakable, and so they have to pretend that it didn't really happen, uh, or otherwise their worldview would collapse because they would seem to be on the side of a pretty evil organization. But another, the less generous side of me thinks it taps into all the things you write about in your book and in your commentary over the past couple of months, which is this another manifestation of anti-Semitism. The, the Jews are liars. They're never the real victims. They've always brought it on themselves. What have you made of the atrocity denialism we've seen since the 7th of October? I think there's there's so much going on there. I think on a, on a fundamental level, it, it is linked to this moral inversion, isn't it? That if, if your worldview is based on an instinct that tells you that the victims are the aggressors, it, you know, Israel is the most liberal society by far in the Middle East, the only meaningful democracy in the Middle East. And if your worldview is based upon telling, telling yourself that this is the most appalling regime in the Middle East instead, you know, that, that's, for, for many people, that's a cornerstone of their political identity. You know, Israel and Palestine, it's not, for many people in the West, it's not really about the real place. It's not about the real people and the real problems in Israel and Palestine. It's about what it says about them. There's this great narcissism that runs through the pro-Palestine movement, or much of it. You know, we had that uh, wonderful example of art workers for Palestine um, doing a sit-in in the Tate. I just imagine Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu picking up the phone and saying, what, the art workers are on strike? Pull the troops out, you know. It's like it's not about that. They're, they're under no illusion that that's going to make any difference to anybody apart from themselves performing their politics. You know, it's it's part of an anti-establishment drive. That's what it is. And you know, if your if your political identity rests upon this moral inversion of seeing the good as the bad and the bad as the good, then when you're faced with the people that you're telling yourself are the good guys revealing themselves to be these medieval savages with it's almost impossible to describe somebody without any human instinct or compassion but they seem to be fulfilling that description when you see that then you've got a choice either you maintain your worldview and say the jews are lying or you totally change your entire politics and identity and the latter is very very hard to do um and and so i think that the temptation to say the Jews are lying is so much easier because when you're on that side of the argument and your worldview is based on a moral inversion, you haven't got to reach very far to find the tropes about the lying, mendacious, manipulative Jews with their fabrications and their manipulations and their string pulling. You know, you're, in the, you're, you're swimming in that swamp already. The tropes are all around you. And so it's just the natural thing to, to, to fall into that atrocity denial. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's very well put. 
I have one more question specifically about Israel before I ask you about what the hell is going on in our own country and other Western countries. It seems uh, I do worry about Israel because, uh, well, for obvious reasons, it's surrounded by hostile forces, uh, some of whom are constitutionally committed to the destruction of Israel and to the destruction of the Jewish people. So it's under siege by uh, anti-Semitic Islamist forces. But it also seems to me that over the past few weeks, couple of months, we've seen some Western powers getting a bit cagey about Israel and wishing that it would just stop all this. And, and of course, there's a movement for a ceasefire as well, which looks to me like a, really a movement for Israel to capitulate, not for an Israeli ceasefire, but for an Israeli capitulation to the uh, neo-fascists that carried out the pogrom of 7th of October. And I don't think Israel should capitulate to those people. Do you get the sense that even though formally Israel still has the support of countries like America and Britain and maybe some European countries, that there is a reluctance to give a full-throated defense of Israel's right to defend itself against these monstrous forces that attacked it on the 7th of October? Do you worry about Israel becoming increasingly isolated and what the consequences that that might pose for Israel itself? Yeah, I think really what we're talking about is, is the United States. Um, I think that the other the other powers don't really have a, a very significant voice when when heard from Jerusalem, as it were. It's really the United States with those aircraft carriers, or I think one aircraft carrier now in the Eastern Mediterranean, and and the, um, the 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 flow of arms to support its its war effort. And you know, Joe Biden, I think has has done surprisingly has been surprisingly solid in his support for Israel, given. The difficulties within his own party on the left of his party there are so many voices who are so antagonistic to israel but i think he's you know he's a wily he's a wily old operator and he reads the center of gravity in in american public opinion he knows that most americans are pro-israel and also he's a he is a lifelong friend of israel even though he hasn't always been on side with it uh, in every way um so yes but then as you've said we, we have seen that beginning to crack there was that outrageous statement from Biden himself where he accused Israel of indiscriminate bombing uh, a few weeks ago, which seemed to have been an isolated, uh, isolated case. Uh, I, I wonder whether it was it was a case of a, a Biden moment, shall we say? Um, you know, someone asked me what was going through Biden's mind when he made that statement. And I wonder if Biden knows what was going through Biden's mind when he made that statement, because it was so at odds with the general rhetoric. But we have seen Anthony Blinken talking about you know, America's credit line towards Israel being limited. So, you know, so that would be a problem. But I think that from the Israeli point of view, things are so clear now. There's been this uh, security doctrine that's been dominant in Israel up until October the 7th called the concept, which Benjamin Netanyahu developed, which was to basically to contain the threat uh, of Hamas and of Hezbollah with their their qualitative military edge, with their military superiority, to to tamp it down, make sure that it didn't flare up too much, the occasional exchange of fire, but basically keep it contained, and then focus on Israeli economic and diplomatic development with the Abraham Accords and so forth. You know, Israel's economy has doubled uh, since Hamas came to power in 2007. Uh, And in the meantime, Hamas has been running Gaza into the ground. So that was the concept. But then when October the 7th happened, it, it showed that that concept was ill-founded because it showed that if you've got a genocidal enemy who is open about its intentions and wishes to do it, has the capacity to do it, sooner or later it will get through. And that's led the Israelis to a new era of clarity, which is no longer can we live with these genocidal enemies pointing their rockets and their knives and their guns at us 
and saying they're going to kill us and ignoring them. We've got to take them out. And so I think that that overarching sense of, you know, these are our lives and our kids on the, and our futures on the line, we've got to fight to destroy the, this threat, means that even if the Americans were to begin to pull the plug, there would be a strong contingency within Israel saying, we've still got to carry on. As the Israeli phrase goes, we've got to defend ourselves by ourselves. The security imperative is so powerful now. Yeah, I, I that sense of clarity that you describe in Israeli society, I've clocked that. I've uh, been speaking to friends of mine in Israel or uh, emailing them and, and asking them what's going on. There is even, you know, some of them are, might be in favor of Netanyahu. Some of them are much, much more skeptical. But across the board, there is this clarity about the threat Israel faces and, and what needs to be done in order to stop that threat and hold it at bay. So just very briefly, it's a very simple metaphor to imagine it here, but but it's but just to give a sense of the scale, I mean, imagine if England was Israel, you would have, uh, you know, let's say Wales was Gaza. It doesn't map exactly, but let's Wales was Gaza. So we've got tens of, of rockets being shot into England from Wales every week. We've had the massacre of 1,200 Britons by a jihadi enclave and its forces in Wales, you have 300 uh, English hostages going over the border. Then you've also got, in Scotland, you've got Hezbollah, 100,000 men, 150,000 precision-guided missiles pointing at our population and firing them on a regular basis to the extent that 100,000 English people have had to move down to London away from the border because they want to get away from the risk. Then you've got the West Bank, which I suppose would be East Anglia and a bit of Essex, where you've got a corrupt authoritarian regime uh, with pockets of terror, frequent you know, car ramming, stabbing attacks, shootings, and so forth. And the whole thing under the influence of Iran in, in East Anglia and, and, and Essex, in Scotland, and also in Wales. What would we do? How would we feel? It's it's an obvious metaphor, but it's quite a powerful one when we think about it. Yeah. It, oh, it is a powerful one. And anyone calling for a, a ceasefire or capitulation in those circumstances would be laughed out of town, I would hope. Um Okay, let's talk a bit now about what's happening here in the UK and I guess in other Western nations as well. You said earlier that it feels like after 7th of October, a flare went up and you could see where everyone was standing. I think that's a very good way to describe it. And where lots of people were standing, including some people who ought to have known better, was on those pro-Palestinian marches. I'm doing air quotes around um, pro-Palestinian because I don't think they were. I think they were anti-Israel, in some ways even pro-Hamas. If you were really pro-Palestinian, you would be in favour of the destruction of Hamas, which is an albatross around the neck of the Palestinian people as much as it is around um, the state of Israel. Let's start with those marches, which Suella Braverman, I think, rather aptly described as hate marches. There were certainly very strong elements of hate on them. What did you make of those marches? The fact that they were there were so many of them, they were fairly well attended, certainly to begin with. They consisted of lots of um, very questionable chants and placards and, and images. What did you make of those? What do you think they told us about where people are standing post 7th of October? I think it tells us a lot to be afraid of in Britain. I mean, if we start with the, the skeleton of the marches, you know, it was interesting. There was a story around last week about Scotland Yard investigating war crime, Israeli war crimes in Gaza and putting up signs. You see that story, putting up signs in the airport. Any witnesses, please come forward so that Scotland Yard can investigate. I mean, this is the same police force that has for decades failed to enforce the law to arrest 
jihadis in Britain, hate preachers, people flouting the law to express hatred and spread this hatred into society. And that's been particularly clear during the marches. I mean, we, we did a story early on in the Jewish Chronicle where we exposed a good proportion of the leaders of the march. I think it was four out of the six groups that were organizing the marches had leaders with strong and explicit connections to Hamas, people who had gone to Gaza and met the Hamas leadership and were fairly open about it. You know, up and down the country each week, just before the marches on Fridays, radical preachers in radical mosques were openly preaching from the pulpit in support of Hamas, which is a crime in Britain to support. Hamas is a, is a prescribed terrorist organization to express any support for it should land you in prison. Um, openly flouting that, 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 that law, being filmed doing it, the film being put on Twitter, and the police still doing the square root of bubble all about it. So you had the, the, the skeleton of the marches being organized by Hamas sympathizers, being amplified in its message by Hamas sympathizers, being attended by people who really were quite intimidating. Um, early on, again, there was a, a, an attack on a, um, a brave Iranian activist uh, who I know who was standing there flying an Israeli flag and he was pursued and threatened with beheading. The police managed to protect him, but the, one of his aggressors was found to be holding a knife, uh, carrying a knife. So you've got those guys. And then you've got you know, the outer corona of useful idiots, mainly if not exclusively from the political left, who probably didn't know very much about the particulars of the conflict and various videos have exposed that where they were asked, you know, you're chanting from the river to the sea, which river and which sea? And answers came like the Caribbean. That's a real case. And um, as, you know, somebody was asked on video, how do you feel when Hamas launched their attack on October the 7th? And they went, Hamas did what? So they, you know, these are people who see, you know, heartbreaking images of Palestinian suffering on TV think, well, the Jews must be to blame. I don't want that to happen anymore. Let's get out on the streets and lend their support to these, to, to these Hamas sympathizers and, and swell their numbers. And I think overall, on the, on, in the bigger picture, it's really part of a, of a move that's undermining Britain from within because the Palestinian protesters are not, they don't just protest about Palestine. The hardcore of them also protest about Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion, Just Stop Oil, um, Radical Veganism, and so forth. And it's part of, a, of an overall progressive worldview that's antithetical towards the values that most people in Britain share and on which our society is built, such as um, liberalism, tolerance, free speech, and so forth. And you could see that particularly on Armistice Day when they weren't just chanting against the Jews, they were attacking the Union flag. It's not just about the Jews. The Jews are simply first in the firing line. But really the trajectory is to take down Western liberal society. And that's what the, the, the pro-Palestinian movement has been recently, the tip of that spear that's been coming for us for a long time from within. Um, and I think that the problem is that the rest of society does not have enough of a belief in itself we've been we've been telling ourselves that we're endemically racist and structurally racist and we have an awful 
of violent history. We've been telling ourselves that for so long, we've lost any confidence in ourselves and our values. And we're allowing ourselves to be overrun ideologically by people who have no such hesitation about what they think. And the problem is that it lends us in the future, it makes us vulnerable to real life attacks by jihadis, by authoritarian regimes that can play on our social malaise and our weakness to exploit that and make uh, and make it real for us. And that's where all this, I fear, may be heading. Absolutely. Um, no, that that kind of social moral malaise you describe is a gift to anyone who would want to undermine Britain or at- even attack Britain. Um, you mentioned racism there, and I wanted to ask you specifically about I guess the return of racism to British society is how we might describe it. And one of the extraordinary things about those protests and a lot of the commentary as well is that um, it's coming from sections of the bourgeois left that tends to see racism everywhere. You know, every innocent faux pas in a conversation is racist. You know, people will remember the case of Lady Hussey. Uh, the royal aide who was dragged over the coals and essentially cancelled for asking um, a, a black woman, where are you from? Um, and we've seen this kind of discussion for a long time, especially on campuses, but also in Guardian Easter circles. You know, everything's racist. British people are racist. Britain is racist and so on. They see racism everywhere, except when it's marching next to them, shoulder to shoulder through the streets of central London, when you have people dressed up like the fascists of Hamas, people chanting uh, and laughing about ancient massacres of Jews. Uh, you have people wearing the paraglider image to celebrate the uh, Hamas terrorists who, who paraglided into Israel to kill Jewish people. You have a, a fairly significant section of the well-educated, left-leaning middle class in London and other cities who are obsessed with racism and then very chilled out about it when it's right next to them and it's aimed at Jewish people. How how do you explain that? Is it just hypocrisy, double standards, or is it that they don't really see that stuff as racist? They see it more as political, more as an expression of resistance. How do you explain that extraordinary blind spot they have on one form of racism in particular? Oh, I think it's, I mean, it's been one of the most revealing aspects of the past three months uh, has been that overt hypocrisy of the people who are loudest about gender-based violence suddenly being the most silent. The people who are loudest about racism suddenly being the most silent about anti-Semitism. Um, you know, the very people who build their identities around Me Too and believe women and silence is violence, you know, who, who hyperventilate at the sin of misgendering, who can detect a microaggression at 20 paces, you know, who require trigger warnings for performances of Romeo and Juliet. Um, you know, they've suddenly developed a summit for things like that. Um, they suddenly are able to cite, as we said before, cite the context. You know, genocide. I mean, there was that amazing piece of AI footage, that um, hearing of the three heads of American universities, uh, Harvard, UPenn and, and MIT, where they were unable to condemn calls for genocide. And somebody did a, a, an AI version where they were, rather than saying calls for genocide of Jews, they were asked, would calls for the genocide of black people contravene the code at Harvard? The camera pans over to Claudine Gay and the smirk, the smirk just really comes across at that point. Oh, no, well, it depends on the context. And then it says, you know, calls for the, how about calls for the genocide of transgender people? Oh, no, it depends on the context. I mean, 
it, it couldn't be the hypocrisy could not be clearer. And you know, as Howard Jacobson wrote in a in a column for me recently, um, it would seem that a massacre is not small enough to be a worry. And it just it, it speaks, of course, anti-Semitism, of course, the David Baddiel line of Jews don't count, but also the real narcissism of this whole thing, where people are, you know, hypersensitive towards misgendering because it's something that's in their world, in their everyday life. It, it, mean, it enables them to pose as a victim or as an ally of victims. But then they're unable to have the imagination or the conscience or the vision to just look outside the shores of their own country and to look at how other people are living and dying and to take a stand on that. And I think that in a way, if they were able to take a stand on a real massacre, it'd be very difficult to take microaggressions seriously, don't you think? So in a way, sort of upholding your militancy about microaggressions and misgendering and so forth rests upon turning a blind eye to the much worse suffering that happens elsewhere in the world. Um, so maybe it's about Gnosticism as well. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Yeah, on on the anti-Semitism crisis, and it, it has become a crisis, um, there's been a huge spike in um, attacks in, in Britain or assaults or um, forms of anti-Semitic abuse. Um, 50 incidents a day in London alone over the past few months. Um, we've seen violent attacks in Europe as well, including the um, firebombing of a synagogue in Berlin and other forms of violence and the daubing of um, Stars of David on Jewish people's homes in France and, and other uh, shocking events. And on campuses too, in America, we've seen Jewish students fleeing into a library to, to protect themselves from the mob. Uh, one extraordinary scene, which I didn't, I think, didn't get enough coverage, was um, radical students at New York University chanting, "We don't want no Jew state. Um, we want all of it." That was their follow-up chant, and you know, an ex explicit cry to eradicate the the Jews of of Israel. Um, and it's been really, obviously, deeply shocking. But what, again, coming back to the question of the double standards and the, and the hypocrisy, what, one thing that I have found remarkable is that we live in nations in which there's a section of the political class or the commentariat that thinks everything is reminiscent of the 1930s. You know, the vote for Brexit was is going to bring back the 1930s or the or Trump was Hitler 2.0. When any populist right-wing politician wins in, in a European country, that's instantly compared to the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s and so on. But when something 
that is genuinely reminiscent of the culture of the 1930s. Firstly, the pogrom uh, launched by Hamas, which was uh, the worst act of violence against the Jews since the Holocaust, but then also um, the anti-Semitic attacks that we've seen in Europe. Then they either don't talk about the 1930s, very suddenly they stop talking about it, or they actually chastise those who do. And I have seen commentators openly saying, you know, how dare these Israeli politicians or their sympathizers in the West, how dare they use the language of the Holocaust or the, uh, uh, the, the specter of Nazism to describe what's happening in the here and now. I mean, that goes beyond double standards, doesn't it? That, that's something, it's almost like there is this effort to separate the Holocaust from the Jews and to claim it as a moral abstract for the commentariat itself. You know, they're, they're claiming ownership, moral ownership of this event, and, and they're deciding who can talk about it and in what instances it could be invoked as, as a spectre. Something quite strange going on with all of that as well, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm actually just trying not to laugh as you're as you're talking at this sort of laugh of despair, hollow laughter, because it's just, I mean, th- there's just such a moral paucity and moral frailty, and um, I mean, it, it's you know to sort of posture about your pet topics and to militate the worst metaphors and similes of Nazi Germany to that cause, and then. I mean, uh, and to be so overtly hypocritical, I mean, it's just, this is, this is luxury, isn't it? This is the luxury of a class that doesn't really have to fight, has never had to fight for anything. It can just, you know, the closer they get, they're ever going to get to anything that matters is Twitter. And, and it's, but, it, but it, the problem is that this, it's not really funny because this moral paucity and, and patheticness um, slides into moral depravity very quickly, particularly when it comes to the Jews. I mean, take, for example, Gary Lineker, um, you know, famously tweeted comparing Suella Braverman and the, and the Home Office rhetoric uh, about illegal asylum seekers, or illegal migrants, rather, to 1930s Germany. And on the 7th of October, the only tweet that he dropped was about Super Spurs winning the league. I, can he not see? Does he not have a mirror? And, you know, the, it, it is part of this overall climate of, of hypocrisy and anti-Semitism, and the two things are pretty much the same, I think, that we see, as you've said, not only in our streets, but in campuses, and spilling over into acts of, acts of aggression, acts of low-level violence, I would say. And... I think, you know, it's important to recognise that the, that the bullying that we're seeing, you know, the, the stars of David and swastikas daubed on, 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 on houses, on buildings, Jewish buildings, the desecration of graves, the, the, the bullying of Jewish students, um, you know, the, all of this anti-Jewish stuff. I mean, I had graffiti outside my house a few weeks ago about Gaza. All of this stuff, it's, it's bad but nobody has, thank God, and I hope I'm not going to eat my words, nobody has been killed, nobody has been hospitalised, there have been no really, really disturbing attacks. Um, and I hope that the word yet won't have to be appended to that. But I think that at the same time, I would say that we need to acknowledge that and acknowledge that in, in the long sweep of Jewish history, Jews have never had it so good as we have it in Britain at the moment. But at the same time, we must sort of bookend that thought with... 
you know, a phrase that was used by Victor Klemperer, the, the, the famous diarist of the, of the Holocaust, um, who described Jews as a seismic people, because you can feel the earthquake coming from the early tremors. And I fear that what we're seeing now um, has been seen before. And when it's been seen, seen before, it has tended to be early tremors of something much worse. That Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. Um, I, I want to just bring back the Israelophobia question for a moment, because one argument that people make, and I'm sure you will have seen this, is that the unfortunate anti-Semitic incidents we've seen in London and other cities are, is an aberration. It has nothing to do with a broader political climate or with the protests that we've seen on the streets of London or with the criticism of Israel. The, we're, we're expected to believe these are two very separate things. I find that unconvincing. And, and one experience that I've had over the past few months is that every time I look at social media, including Instagram, which is the only social media I use because it's not as crazy as all the other ones, um, what I've noticed is there's been a, an explosion in classical anti-Semitism, and I see a lot of it uh, coming from the far right, a lot of it from America, in fact, um, really ugly stuff, you know, hook noses, killers of Christ, uh, grotesque images of Jewish people drinking babies' blood, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the classical stuff. Um, and then on the other side, you see constant social media commentary about the unique wickedness of Israel, uh, the bloodlust of Israel, the murderous nature of Israel, the unique murderous nature of Israel, as a column in The Guardian said, uniquely murderous. And so you look at all this stuff, and you so on the one hand, you have people saying the Jews are the most evil people. And on the other hand, you have people saying the Jewish state is the most evil state. And we're expected to believe that these are entirely separate phenomenon that the former is racist and illegitimate, but the, the latter is anti-racist and perfectly legitimate. I mean, that's not convincing, is it? There has got to be, at some level, a crossover between these things or a, 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 an influencing dynamic between these two things. Yeah, I mean, one of the, again, to go back to, to my book, one of the interesting things about anti-Semitism is that the anti-Semite never thinks he's doing anything wrong. He always thinks that he's actually on the side of the angels um you know those who killed jews in the middle ages because they killed christ thought they were doing god's work or uh, something holy the nazis thought they were doing something good for the benefit of mankind and i say thought they were told themselves that they were you know they, they all believe they were erasing moral corruption for the good of the world and it's and the same thing applies here the distinction between you know, anti-Semitism, as a classical anti-Semitism, and the hatred of Israel serves the anti-Semite at the moment. It's it's a very handy mechanism because it enables you to say, "Oh no, I'm not anti-Semitic. I just fucking hate Israel." You know, as again, as uh, quoted Hal Jacobson already, as Hal Jacobson put it, "Oh no, I don't hate Jews as individuals. I only hate them by the country." But you know, making the separation between you know hating Jews who aren't Israeli as being bad and hating Jews who are Israeli as being okay allows your anti-Semitism free reign. It can go and play. It can go and play in, 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 in anything to do with Israel. Your anti-Semitism can, can find full voice. You know, in fact, Saul Bellow called Israel and Palestine the moral holiday resort for anti-Semites. It's like you can go on holiday, you know, forget, for, you know, it's, it can be quite tiring holding your bigotry down to, to, to mask it, to disguise it, to, to, to repress it. 
to let it go. Just call it Zionism rather than Judaism, and you're all right. And um, and I think that this this instinct to try to delineate between between hating hating Jews who aren't Zionists who aren't Israeli um, and hating the vast majority who are is just a, a way of you know people say I can't be anti-Semitic because I've got a Jewish friend you know as, as if as if having a Jewish friend is a price worth paying to get the freedom to express your anti-Semitism towards Israel and inevitably your Jewish friend is going to be a hard left. Um, fringe extremist who you know shares your Israelophobia because, as I've said in my book, Israelophobia is a political phenomenon. So it's more it's easier for Jews to have it as well. Um, so it's shifted, it's evaded our sort of our detection a little bit. So it's all a game, it's all a ploy, it's all just it's anti-Semitism's latest route to find a way to express itself without being caught. And the people who are expressing it are as convinced as they always were for thousands of years that they're doing nothing wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you hear that cry all the time. It's not anti-Semitic to criticise Israel. And you think, okay, fine, but it might just be anti-Semitic to obsess about Israel to the exclusion of every other state and to lose sleep over Israel and to have this feverish loathing of Israel and, and to think it's a state, you know, uh, up to its neck in bloodlust and uniquely murderous and uniquely keen on killing women and children in particular. It's when you get to that level, you think, okay, Criticise Benjamin Netanyahu, knock yourselves out. But when you're engaging in that kind of Israelophobia, as you call it, I mean, that crosses the line very clearly. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And that's why I used the word Israelophobia or started to use it, because, you know, people at the moment can say, without the word Israelophobia, people can say, well, I'm not, not anti-Semitic because I've got a Jewish friend. Okay, well, you're anti-Zionist. And they say, well, yes, I am anti-Zionist. That's a legitimate position. Um, and that is used as cover for the most illegitimate criticism of any country that anybody could ever ever think of but just to kind of return to the point that i made right at the beginning of israel behaving as any other country would behave in response to this act of aggression by hamas i mean that in a really broad sense in that any country in the world would behave in this way in terms of retaliating and defending its citizens but it would also include villains every country in the world has bad guys has people who are not morally upstanding you know we've got them in britain the americans have them the french have them every single country in the world has them and yes israel has them there are people in the cabinet in the israeli cabinet who are far right and who are firebrands and who are extremists and who are unpleasant of course there are because israel is a country populated by human beings and human beings sometimes can be bad and in fact the, the quote that i had at the beginning of of my book from uh, Zev Jabotinsky said, as one of the first conditions of equality, we demand the right to have our own villains as everybody else has them. But the rest of the world is just not willing to give Israel that right to be normal, to be ordinary. And that's where Israelophobia comes in, this demonization, this double standards, the hypocrisy. Just see Israel as a normal country, for God's sake, and get over yourself. <laughs> uh, okay, Jake, my final question for you um, is really about what is at stake here? Now, I think we know what's at stake for Israel, which is its existence as, as a country. We know what's at stake for Jewish people in other parts of the world, their security, their sense of security, at least. Um, but I want to ask you about what you think is at stake for the West more broadly, because one of the things that has depressed me since the 7th of October is a, a, an inability to recognize amongst significant sections of the political class and the media class in the, in the West that... Um, this is kind of our fight as well in terms of 
you know, we face a direct threat from radical Islam. We've seen that on the streets of London, Paris, and other cities over the past um, decade and more. We know that within our communities, within our societies, there is a turn against the values of Western civilization, a turn against the values of enlightenment and embrace of more um, backward, regressive, anti-modern ways of thinking, and even a sympathy for Islamist ideas, because Islamism shares with the modern radical left a loathing for Western civilization, a loathing for Western modernity. So it seems to me that um, that flare going up in the sky and, and exposing where people are standing, it, it seems to have shown that a lot of people are standing against the ideals of Western civilization rather than uh, for them. So isn't there something really profound at stake for all of us in relation to what Hamas has unleashed and the consequences it has had around the world? It's a really good question. And, it, and you're right, it is hugely profound. And it's these sorts of ideas that I'm playing with for my, for my next book but I think I mean, you're absolutely right that what we're seeing is not just about Israel. It's about ourselves, as I said earlier, what, what, it, what, it, what it shows up, what it, what it illuminates, something that's really quite terrifying for our own societies. I mean, we've had people on the streets of London chanting from London to Gaza, globalize the Intifada. The Intifada was 140 suicide bombs in three years on buses full of children going to school in the morning, on pizzerias, on synagogues, on hotels. We've had a suicide bomb recently in Manchester. Do we want more of that? Do we want that here in London? And, and like you say, this is, there's this sympathy, there's this alliance between progressives and jihadis. And we've talked about this before. I mean, something that I thought about it that occurred to me recently was a lot of the overlap is in the question of decolonization. You know, Hamas, uh, or rather the PLO, the Palestinian terror, arose in the 60s, inspired by Algeria. You know, in, in Algeria, the French, after an occupation of, I think it was about 120 years, were forced out by a brutal guerrilla war, which had a lot of Islamism involved in it, that, that had a sort of death by a thousand cuts. Let's just make their life so unbearable, they'll eventually withdraw. The French then responded with savage measures, uh, with uh, bombings and so forth, which turned public opinion against the French. And then the French pulled out. And then, that, so from the Palestinian point of view, they saw that decolonization struggle as being, as being something, a playbook they could emulate uh, in the 60s, um, which was then added to with uh, this sort of hyper-Islamism that Hamas developed. And decolonization is something that is a buzzword now. You know, we've, in the West, we've caught up with it, that, that the far left has come to dominate academia and the, the thinking of the elites. And so it's no surprise, really, that you end up with people, you know, progressives on the left supporting Hamas, because it's that the common denominator is this idea of decolonization. But of course, the Israelis are not colonizers. They are not the French. They have nowhere to withdraw to. It's not going to happen. And that's where Hamas have, have misjudged Israel. However much pain they're causing Israeli society, however much cruelty they're meeting out from, you know, that they found on the body of a Hamas fighter inside his flat, flak jacket, the, the, the head of a child that he was carrying around with. I mean, the brutality, but also the cruelty, you know, not releasing whole families of hostages together, keeping a couple of members back so that the family is still in pain you know, forcing kids in captivity to watch videos of atrocities committed by Hamas, you know, telling 
a, a father in captivity on camera about the deaths of his family and filming his response. That cruelty is designed to make life for Israelis as unbearable as it was for the French in Algeria to cause them to withdraw. But instead, what it has evoked in Israel is the most extraordinary blossoming of of solidarity and determination. And, and I, I really hesitate to use this word. In fact, I'm not going to use it. I was going to use the word joy, but it's not joy, it's optimism. Polls have shown in the in the months after, in the weeks after October the seventh, that Israeli society, the levels of optimism had gone up rather than had gone down. People are pulling together and reacting to this brutality with a sense of togetherness, and that's why Israeli society is is so successful. And in fact, to loop back to the question about what it means for the West, you know, we've got this, as I said before, this moral malaise, this cancer in our society that's trying to rob us of our confidence in our history and in our values, which is a good history and our good values, um, you know, not perfect, but about as good as anyone has ever come up with in in, in our world. Um, liberalism, tolerance, pluralism, um, democracy, those are good things. You know, the market is a good thing. Lifting people out of poverty is a good thing. But we're losing confidence in that under the ideological onslaught of these progressives with their jihadi allies. And I feel like if you look back towards Israel, the the one glimmer of hope, really, actually there'd be more than one glimmer of hope, but the main glimmer of hope that we've seen in Israel since October the 7th has been the way in which Israel's Arab minority has responded to October the 7th. You know, in 2021, which was the last Gaza conflict, there were fears of civil war because Israeli Arabs were rioting against Jews and there was internecine violence and there, was, there were worries that, 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 that the war in Gaza or the conflict in Gaza would ignite civil unrest in Israel. But the opposite has been true since October the 7th. It was so brutal. Muslim Arabs were killed by Hamas trying to defend their Jewish friends. They were taken hostage by Hamas. There are Muslim Arabs fighting for the Israel Defense Forces in Gaza at the moment, such as uh, this the, the most senior female Muslim officer in the IDF is called Captain Ella. She's a bit of an internet sensation. People like her. You know, after October the 7th, you had people like Naz Daly, this great uh, YouTuber uh, and Instagram star, uh, Palestinian Israeli, Israeli Arab, writing a column for Haaret saying, I used to see myself as Palestinian Israeli, now I'm Israeli first. You had people like Lucy Aharish, this Arab-Israeli TV anchor, delivering a moving monologue about how she's Israeli and she stands behind, four square behind Israel's armed forces. And you even had, on the level of politics, the most statesmanlike political figure in Israel to have emerged since October the 7th. In fact, he always was, actually, was, was Mansour Abbas. Mansour Abbas leads Israel's largest Arab party. He's a conservative Muslim. He's an Islamist. He's a non-violent Islamist. He's been behind Israel on this. When one of his politicians from his party made a comment suggesting that some of the October the 7th footage could have been fabricated, he sacked her immediately. No questions asked. And all of this shows that I think that the strength of Israeli togetherness and sense of purpose and identity and unity and the the, the lack of, of the sort of pathetic self-doubt that we've been encouraged to feel in Britain has enabled Israeli society to carry, to some large extent, its Arab minority, Muslim minority, with it. And I'm not saying it's all rosy. Of course, there are significant problems of extremism there as well. But I feel that in Israel, 
the Muslim minority is being carried with the country in a way that we can sort of learn from in Britain. That if we have a stronger national story to tell, unapologetic about our values of liberalism and tolerance and democracy and so forth, and bring people with us, bring minorities with us, make make being British about being about the values that we share, not your identity or your victimhood or your grievance, then I think there's, there's a way to combat this moral malaise. And I think that we can all learn from that. Jake, thank you very much. Thank you, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.